This episode is brought to you by this one time a few years ago, I was playing Grand Theft Auto Online, and I did a deathmatch session or something like that with someone else I did not know. And for some reason, they always stopped shooting or throwing hands at the very last second so that I could win. And mind you, I was probably at like level 30 or 35, and this person was way up there in the triple digits. Anyway, I eventually caught on that they were letting me win, so I just rolled with it because an encounter with a nice stranger on Grand Theft Auto Online is rare enough as it is. And as soon as the session ended, I shit you not, wads of cash began descending from a wormhole in the universe right onto my player, showering her in tens and millions of dollars. The shower continued for about a full 40 to 60 seconds and then never happened again. After that, I could buy as many cars and guns and clothes as I wanted with still plenty more to spare. I still have no idea how that happened or why, if it was planned or if the face just smiled on my character that day. I know there are glitches and stuff, but I did nothing on my part to make this one happen. I have not played the game in a few years, so somewhere out there, my character is sitting up in her nice apartment with a full wardrobe and lying on a bed full of cash. I do hope she is doing well. Greetings to another episode of The Root of All Ope. I'm your host, Tatum Schrader. Today, you're in for a real treat because we're going to dive into an HBO miniseries that I am quite fond of. But before I drop the title of it, I'm going to do a special poetry reading for you. What makes this one so special? Well, this poem was written by one of my own dear patrons and also my best friend, Annie. If you would like to check out more of Annie's art creations, I've included links to their Ko-fi, Facebook, and Instagram in the description for this episode. This is not going to be one of my longer poetry readings, but it is probably one of my all-time favorite poems my friend has written. And in a few moments, I hope you'll see why. Nature Robot I am a concept, forced into a predetermined shell. This is why life is living hell. I'm collapsing within myself, reaching for stars, feeling like ladybugs trapped in jars. My core is iron. My shell is carbon, choking on nitrogen, the deterioration of my calcium. I feed the dandelions who feed the ground. I escape back into the sky and drown. My home among star stuff. Now, as I've mentioned on and off for the past few episodes, I have been wanting to discuss media outside of the film genre to see if I can tackle a story that cannot be wrapped up in about two hours. Today is the first time I'm going to be doing that. We're going to be delving into the 2018 HBO miniseries Sharp Objects. For starters, this is about eight hours worth of content, being that the series is eight episodes long and each episode is about an hour. So, rather than trying to rush through trying to cover a bunch of material in one episode, I'm going to split my review of Sharp Objects into three parts. I'll start with a brief summary of the series, along with some background, and I'll discuss some of the elements and themes before we jump into it and tackle it episode by episode. Sharp Objects, based on the book of the same name by Jillian Flynn, follows a journalist named Camille Preaker who is sent to write about a series of murders taking place in her hometown. Now, you might have heard the name Jillian Flynn as related to her arguably more popular and very controversial book, Gone Girl. Gone Girl was published in 2012 and was made into a film in 2014. And to this day, I still see people talking about it and analyzing this story. I don't want to talk about Gone Girl too much because it's not the focus of this episode, but I will say as someone who also read the book and watched the movie, people don't like it because the female character is very, very irredeemably bad. 
she is someone who I think some readers are going to understand and sympathize with to a point, but certainly not to the point that it justifies all of the nasty things she does in the story. But, spoiler warning real quick, what makes it controversial is that the female character in question basically gets away with all her evil doings. I'm going to take a quote from Flynn herself in an interview she did with The Guardian, in which she discusses her own take on the accusations of misogyny she received for Gone Girl. As a note, Jillian Flynn has stated that she does identify as a feminist. In response to the question if her use of narrative shocks in her stories hurts her image as a feminist, quote, To me, that puts a very, very small window on what feminism is. Is it really only girl power and you go girl and empower yourself and be the best you can be? For me, it's also the ability to have women who are bad characters. The one thing that really frustrates me is this idea that women are innately good, innately nurturing. In literature, they can be dismissively bad, trampy, vampy, bitchy types. But there's still a big pushback against the idea that women can be just pragmatically bad, evil, and selfish. I don't write psycho bitches. The psycho bitch is just crazy. She has no motive. And she's a dismissible person because of her psycho bitchiness. Unquote. In 2015, Jillian Flynn also stated that, quote, I've grown quite weary of the spunky heroines, brave rape victims, soul-searching fashionistas that stock so many books. I particularly mourn the lack of female villains, unquote. Now, I won't say that I agree with every writing decision Jillian Flynn makes in her works. If I wanted to, I could try to find little sentences in her works here and there that leave me a bit on the wary side. In addition, I tried to find any statements Flynn has made on political views or social issues, but it does seem she is a very private person who does not make those well known, so I can't speak to that either. That being said, I do agree with her that we sorely lack female characters who are allowed to just be plain bad. I agree that feminism is not just about female characters being strong, empowered, etc. It's about allowing female characters to be as complex and diverse as, well, women are in real life. It's about allowing them to address and tackle tough issues and not necessarily always make the right choice. And that extends to not just showing women as people to be admired in the story either. The reason I bring all this up is because I want you to get an idea of Jillian Flynn's approach to feminism in her stories before we delve into sharp objects. Because while I personally love sharp objects more than Gone Girl, Flynn still takes the same approach on how she writes her female characters. They are messed up, complex, dark, with interwoven stories and relationships. And it's a major reason I cannot recommend Sharp Objects highly enough. Now for what it's worth, I will say I have read the book Sharp Objects as well. And I know some people are going to start reaching for the torches and pitchforks when I say this, but I think this is one of the cases where I enjoyed the series more than the book. Now hear me out. Of course, in fairness, most of the time we see the opposite happen when a screen adaptation fails to either tackle everything the book addresses or, when it does tackle them, fails to properly translate them into a visual format, aka movies like Percy Jackson or Wrinkle in Time. However, that is not to say a book-to-movie-slash-series adaptation is impossible, and of course we have seen quite a few that are very successful. But I would argue that on occasion, an adaptation can breathe new life into the story and use certain filmmaking techniques that add a new layer of depth. I also think that the reason a lot of screen adaptations from books struggle to be well received is because they're trying to cram a long, often very detailed plot into a two-hour film, so a lot is rushed through or skipped altogether. Even if the movie version is undoubtedly good, you miss out on a lot that just had to be cut for time's sake. One good example would be the Lord of the Rings film trilogy. 
But that's where the format of a television miniseries comes in, which can allow much more screen time. Now, to be fair to Flynn, she did work as an executive producer on Sharp Objects, and she also wrote three of the eight episodes. So I'm not saying the book is bad, but I will say that certain themes addressed in the book, to me, were fleshed out a bit more in the series. And the fact that Flynn worked on the show probably means this was quite intentional. After all, Sharp Objects the book was published in 2006, and the series was released in 2018. So that's quite a few years between there to return to certain ideas. But to me, Sharp Objects, in my opinion, is a perfect example of how to adapt a book to the screen. Rather than trying to cram the whole book in a two-hour format, it's allowed time to room, breathe, embrace the story's aesthetic, supporting cast, and recurring themes in an eight-plus-hour runtime. This is not the first book to miniseries adaptation I've seen this work in. Some other good examples I can think of are Good Omens, Big Little Lies, I'm Not Okay With This, and The Outsider. But, all this to say, I liked the series more than the book personally this time, and I'll talk a little bit more about why later on. But first, let's get into Sharp Objects. On the surface, Sharp Objects is a modern approach to the classic Southern Gothic genre. It's about two murdered girls and the people trying to find out who did it. It could also be called a psychological thriller. And I know I've done those before on this podcast, so I am sensing a bit of a pattern there. It's also a family drama depicting similarities and differences between generations and the traits children inherit from their parents. It's about the relationship between a mother and daughter and two sisters. In fact, it's about two different pairs of sisters. And finally, it's about the relationship between an individual and their community and how one can influence the other. The primary setting for the series is a small town called Wind Gap, located in Missouri. Wind Gap is itself a fictional town, but it's based on other towns located in the boot heel of southeast Missouri, which is that little knob on the bottom right corner of the state. Now this region of the state is much more southern than midwestern. One resident of southeast Missouri put it this way in an online discussion on the book, the link of which is in the podcast description. Quote, Flynn made a concerted effort to show the boot heel for what it is, rather than lumping us into the Midwest like most do. Down here, it is hotter and more humid than the rest of the state, and geographically doesn't look any different from northern Louisiana. I have taken to always specifying southeast Missouri to try to show that, while I am from a Midwestern state, I hardly qualify as a Midwesterner." Unquote. Now, if you've read any other Flynn's books or watched their adaptations, this won't be a big surprise to you. Flynn herself was born and raised in Missouri, so she is writing from personal experience. And maybe that is one of the things that draws me to her stories, since I've spent the majority of my life in Minnesota, and that is where my book, Tales from the Last Great Lake, takes place. It's a wonderful example of how following the write-what-you-know advice works, going back to your roots, processing where you came from, but I don't know, maybe I'm just projecting a little. Anyway, suffice it to say, this show is also going to hit close to home for anyone who has grown up in a small town or some sort of tight-knit community, and especially if said town slash community was toxic or harmful, and if you were able to leave, and if you ever had to go back there for whatever reason. And that's something I can also relate to. I spent my first 10 years in a small town, and the next 10 in an even smaller town. It was so small, we had two churches, a gas station, a restaurant, a clothing store, and a post office, and that was it. We had a McDonald's, Dairy Queen, and Subway in the next town over, but pretty much any fast food chains beyond that had to be found at least 40 to 60 minutes away. And even farther, if you wanted to do any shopping, you could not do at Walmart. So to say that a lot of the scenes in Wind Gap feel all too familiar is a big understatement for me. There are a lot of quips throughout the show 
about how there is nothing to do in Windgap and how fast gossip spreads and so on. And even though I'm from the Midwest, and this is, as we went over, a far more southern than Midwestern town, I could still relate. Now, the first major theme Sharp Objects tackles is a lot like our previous episode, that is, about trauma and processing trauma. But Sharp Objects is a whole other beast with this subject. I'll get more into that later on, but for now, I'll just say this. This is a story about somebody having to confront a lot of darkness from her past. When I say that this show is intense, brutal, graphic, and tackles a lot of heavy subject material, I'm not kidding around. The main character, Camille, to begin with, suffers from alcoholism. From the first episode, we see her carrying a bag full of liquor bottles, and she drinks in every single episode, too. And it's not just Camille that drinks, either. And when other characters do drink, they're in various states of sobriety or lack thereof. They drink to be social, they drink out of boredom, they drink to numb the pain, or drink just to drink. Underage characters drink a lot as well. On top of this, there is also illegal drug use, both implied and on screen, and also some is done by underage kids. So, if you have alcohol-slash-drug-related trauma, I would approach the show with extreme caution. In addition, the, the show does touch now and then on rape, assault, and the issue of consent. It's never explicitly shown, but we get tiny little shots or glimpses or pieces of dialogue that tap into some very horrific stuff that these characters have gone through. Basically, while they never show the entire picture, we get enough pieces that allows us to put it together. So that is also something to keep in mind if you're going to watch the series or read the book. Finally, there is the recurring theme of self-harm. Camille is a cutter, and she is literally, and I mean literally, covered in self-harm scars. We see her hurt herself on more than one occasion, and in scenes where she is in any state of undress, you are going to get a good glimpse of her scarring. If you have struggled or currently struggle with self-harm, this show could be very triggering. Similarly, it also weaves in and out of depictions of suicide, mental illness, emotional and mental and medical abuse, death and loss of a loved one, and near death. For each episode, I will get into more specifics about what sort of stuff comes up to see, but again, this is just a major heads up of the sort of stuff we will be getting into. All this to say, watching the series feels much like we are enduring it all alongside Camille. As her buried down memories resurface, so we are forced to watch them with her. If she is having a flashback, we have to see it all. We see her pain as she goes through loss, abuse, and addiction. And when we uncover horrific truths about what's going on around her, we experience that same horror with her. But one would like to hope that we can also walk into recovery alongside Camille as well, and that with the confrontation of old demons comes a sense of healing. But I'm getting ahead of myself. That is just a general coverage of the series as a whole. Hopefully I've gotten you excited to start breaking it down as we dive in. So let's get into the first episode. Episode 1, titled Vanish, kicks off when we meet our hero Camille. She clocks into work at the St. Louis Chronicle, only for her boss, Frank, to tell her about a girl named Anne Nash who was murdered in Camille's little hometown of Windgap, and that another girl named Natalie Keene is missing. So, this is just a typical Tuesday in Windgap, I would imagine. And just like that, Frank carts her off to go do a story on the crimes. In Frank's words, the fact that Camille comes from Windgap will give her story a flair of personal touch that will make it a hit. Makes sense, I guess. I do take Frank's word for it. However, it's a bit more complicated than that. Camille has not returned to Windgap since she left as a young adult, and for good reason. She's got a lot of bad stuff weighing for her back there. Not just bad memories of things she has not dealt with, but a pretty shitty mom who still lives in Camille's childhood home. But this is her job, and Frank won't take no for an answer. 
So off we go, heading out of the St. Louis metropolis and many miles into the boot heel of Missouri. On its surface, Wind Gap does not seem to look half bad. At least the downtown has some of that little small town charm, with old brick buildings and faded murals and mom and pop shops. But as we understand pretty quickly on, the beauty is skin deep. Lingering right beneath the sweet tea and country twain, the town is full of people who gossip, backstab, binge drink, and take illegal drugs. But more so, it's a town with a large divide between the rich and the poor, or as Camille puts it, white trash and old money. Her mother, Adora, for example, owns a pig farm and lives in a big fancy house, while many of the people working for her live in poverty. I'm going to jump into another aspect of the show that needs to be brought up, but keep all this in mind about Wind Gap for now. One of the show's recurring themes is the use of hidden words and clues in the background, many of which are a blink-and-you-miss-it moment. Now, I have seen the entire series about seven or eight times, and when I was doing my research for this episode, I realized I still had yet to notice all of the hidden words for myself. Some of the words are more subtle, with their meaning being more ambiguous and left to interpretation. However, others, in my opinion, are much more startling, even frightening once you see them. Not just because the words themselves, but because of where they appear. Sometimes words will show up in the last place you would expect, or worse, where they should not appear at all. I'm not going to mention every single hidden word or phrase in the show, but if you are interested, there are quite a few articles and forums online that talk about them. Or, maybe you want to find them all for yourself and see if there are any that are still being missed. However, the show goes just beyond this, and uses lots of little visual hints that tap into Camille's psychology. Basically, it is a spot-on visual representation of the long-lasting effects of trauma. One of the things that can be difficult in a visual story format is to show the audience the character's inner monologue, their train of thought. And this is often where I notice a sense of frustration when a book is made into a movie or a show. But for me, Sharp Objects figured out how to capture Camille's thoughts and memories without depending on a single voiceover. For example, and we will see this a lot, Camille's memories and the present overlap. The child version of herself will run out of a room, and we see Camille in the present in the exact same shot. It's a great visual way of stating how much Camille's thinking about events that happened in these same rooms years ago, and how much they affect her even now. It could also point to a potential paranormal element of the show, with the presence of ghosts, or the past and present overlapping. But that is a much more in-depth discussion I'll have to reserve once we've watched the entire series. But I did want to bring that up as yet another layer to this whole thing. But back to the hidden words, let's start getting into those. In episode 1, we see the first hidden words in Camille's office, which shows the word ask. I see this as an invitation to the viewer to be asking themselves prodding questions about what they are seeing, because, no spoilers, but as we will see later on, not all is that appears in the show. I think it's also worth mentioning that the ask is followed by an exclamation point, which indicates a sense of importance or urgency, or both. Why would it be important and or urgent to ask questions so early on into the episode, I wonder? We see the next hidden words on Camille's table at her home as she is getting ready to leave. These words are scratched in her table, which are bad, drunk, and bleed. Of course, these refer to Camille's own problems, that is, her issues with self-esteem and her addictions to alcohol and self-harm. While the words are pretty hard to see unless you're looking for them, they are her subtle reminders of the struggles Camille faces. We also see the word dirty written on her car in the dust. But what's especially startling about this one is that in the first shot of her car, we do not see the words, but in the next shot, the words seem to magically appear. Therefore, it's an indication of the words going through Camille's head, not necessarily words that appear in the physical reality. 
We do see more of this later on. As she is leaving the city to head back to Wingap, we see a sign on the freeway state, Last Exit to Change Your Mind. Obviously, this is Camille's subconscious projecting this idea. Again, her inner monologue reflecting itself on what the audience sees, rather than a voiceover we hear. Camille is, of course, reluctant to come back to her hometown. It's the last thing she wants to do. It's the last place she wants to go. But she has to. Now, you may be thinking what I thought the first time I watched the episode and read the book. Why does the editor, Frank, send Camille to Wingap if he knows it's going to be hard on her? Why would he make her go to the place where all of her problems originated? Well, we will get more of that into future episodes, but from the beginning, it seems that Frank understands something Camille doesn't yet about herself. Later on in the episode, when Camille calls Frank to update her on her work, he asks if she is doing okay and to call him if she needs anything. In later phone calls, he is constantly checking to make sure she is holding up, while also, also pushing her to write a good story for the newspaper. Frank is, to be, well, Frank, one of the genuinely good people in the entire show. He pushes Camille to go back to Wingap because he wants the best for her. He knows that in order for her to heal, she has to stop running from the past and finally face it. I guess you could call what he's doing a form of tough love. To be fair, it's not as if Camille isn't at least self-aware about this. In one scene in a future episode, Camille puts it as, quote, My demons are not remotely tackled. They're just mildly concussed, unquote. But as we're going to see unfold in the rest of the show, Camille is suffering so much because she has repressed a lot of the experiences she had as a child. She has been using her drinking and cutting as ways to cope with the pain, but has not fully delved deep in what's causing her so much pain and what she needs to do to heal. So, much like when a surgeon has to re-break a bone that has not healed correctly before it begin recovery in the right direction, Camille has to get hurt in order to start moving on. She is going to have to face what she tried to leave behind in Wind Gap, monsters that she has been trying to run away from for years. One of these monsters is, of course, Camille's own mother. When Camille arrives back in town, she goes to her childhood home and asks to stay there for a few days while she works. Her mother is now married to someone other than Camille's birth father, and those two have a daughter named Emma, who is a teenager. Her mother, Adore, is, how do I say this, a piece of work. From their first interaction, a lot of the dialogue between Camille and Adora in episode one will also hit home if you're, again, from a small town or small community. For example, when Camille passes out in her car from drinking and comes home the next morning, as a note, the hidden word Ron appears in this scene, her mother is quick to remind her that Camille's actions reflect on the whole family and that people are going to talk about them behind their back. We're going to get a lot more into Camille's cocktail of a mother later on, but for now, we get the impression that she has a lot of faces she puts on. Adora knows exactly how to carry herself in social spaces to make people perceive her exactly how she wants to be perceived. But as soon as Camille crosses the line, Adora is going to cut deep. Quick footnote, her mom also mentions how she knew Anne Nash, the murdered girl, as well as Natalie Keene, the missing girl. Meanwhile, Camille is seeing people she has not seen in years in Wingap, and she is trying to get used to being back in her hometown, all the while getting enough facts for her story. This is where we see more of that stuff beneath the skin-deep small-town charm of Wingap that I mentioned earlier. In the climax of episode one, we come to a horrific discovery Rollon with Camille. Right outside of downtown, the body of the second missing girl, Natalie Keane, is discovered, propped up in an open window, dirtied and bruised. Worst of all, all of her teeth have been removed from her mouth. That is a recurring image, so keep it in mind. For now, as if poor Camille has not been fucked up enough by life, now she has to deal with the horror of seeing the dead body of a murdered teenage girl. 
So what a wonderful traumatic experience to add to Camille's This Is Why I Drink bingo card. Also, as a fun little tangent, we get the hidden word Yelp in this scene too, a reference to the understandable shock and alarm at the discovery of a dead body. So, now we have two murdered girls in a small town where gossip spreads like wildfire, and we're only in episode one. Now, on top of all this, throughout episode one, we also have another layer to the story, that is, glimpses into Camille's past. In the opening scene, and in various brief scenes, we get flashbacks to another girl alongside a younger Camille. First, this girl is healthy, then appears to have fallen ill. In the ending of the episode, this culminates to a funeral scene of the girl. It's pretty easy to figure out that this girl is Camille's sister from before, and of course she got sick and passed away. It's yet another layer to Camille's story that has not healed right. In one scene within Adora's house, we see that Camille's late sister's bedroom is still set up as if she is still alive. It's pretty unsettling and also heartbreaking. It's a depiction of the long-term effects grief can have on a family. And don't worry, we are going to get in Camille's dead sister a lot more later on. But it's very important to realize that this is one of the most defining parts of Camille. Also, it eerily parallels what's happened in present day, doesn't it? It seems that Wingap has quite the history of dead little girls. The death of childhood, of innocence, of the idea that this is just a charming little southern town. There is a graveyard of dead little girls. And dare we say, not always necessarily in the literal sense. Now a quick warning. Episode 1 has a couple subtle lines of rather nasty homophobia. One character refers to gay people as those types and calls a teenager gay bait. Another warning, the father of one of the murdered girls states that he would rather the suspect kill her than rape her. Which, as awful as that line is to hear, I guess it really does point to the values this lovely little town has, especially as it relates to girls. To wrap up episode one, let's circle back to a couple hidden words. In the morning after Camille passes out from drinking, we see the word weary written out of rust on the side of a building. We also see the word girl written inside Emma's dollhouse, which startlingly disappears in a second shot. And finally, the ending shot is of the episode's title, Vanish, written on Camille's arm. These all have pretty obvious meanings, but the way the camera lingers on Camille's scarred arm can be quite unsettling. Episode 2, Dirt, is basically centered on the aftermath of the second girl's murder, and we get a bit more insight into the case. This episode kicks off with a strange montage of various images from Camille's past and present, most of which will not make sense to us yet. One of these includes a brief shot of two or more not-so-hidden words as scars on Camille's body, vice and fornicate. These both hint at parts of her past that have messed her up, but we will get more into those later. I know, I sound like a broken record, but bear with me. Now when Camille wakes up, we see a young woman standing in her room who appears a second later. Remember earlier I said this might be a hint of the paranormal? We will find out who this girl is in another episode, so put a pin on it. As for Natalie's funeral, which Camille and Adora attend together, this is one of the most emotionally difficult scenes to watch in the entire series, in my opinion. It's bad enough seeing the funeral of a young girl whose life was ahead of her. A whole other beast when it's brutally taken in an act of murder and the killer is still out there especially seeing Natalie's older brother, John, who is an absolute train wreck, who in fact we saw briefly in the previous episode, who was still a train wreck then too. Here, it is important to mention that the Keene family are not originally from Wind Gap. They moved here from Philadelphia a few years ago due to Natalie having problems at school. Now, why is that important? Because it means the Keens are outsiders to Wind Gap. 
they have not been brought up in this particular culture of gossip, white trash and old money, and substance abuse. As such, they don't behave the way one would expect a family in the South to behave. The interesting thing about this funeral scene is that it parallels flashbacks to the funeral of Camille's dead sister from many years ago. In these flashbacks, we see a distraught Camille lashing out when she sees her sister's dead body. Later on, Camille tries to find some comfort in her mother, but Adora turns her away, not even giving her daughter a hint of an embrace. It's a flashback that puts a lot of Camille and Adora's present relationship into context. Camille was the neglected daughter, the one who was too wild and too reckless, the one who did not obey Adora as much as she should have. Perhaps, as we will see later, Camille's dead sister and now her half-sister Emma have a lot in common, and this did not go unnoticed by Adora. I'm going to circle back to Camille and Adora later, but the bottom line is, Camille has never been doted on or cared for or received affection from her mother, but both of her sisters have. I think a hidden word in Natalie Keene's funeral scene points to this. We see the word hope on a banner inside the church change to the word hurt. It does go without saying that going to this funeral would resurface some old wounds for Camille. However, the day is saved when Camille's dress tears and so she ducks out of the funeral early. Later, as Camille makes a stop at the gas station, we run into Emma and her two friends, who follow Emma around and say and do anything she tells them to. The three girls also sneak vodka into a bottle of soda before buying it, so, as we're seeing here, Camille is not the only person in her family with an apparent drinking problem. Back to Adora, one other thing we keep seeing Adora do is plucking out her own eyelashes. It's a recurring image and a bit of an odd one, with close-ups revealing this both in flashbacks and in the present. Eerily enough, it reminds me of Camille's self-harm, almost like a more easily hidden form of it, or, I suppose, a method of self-harm Adora has found she can continually do without putting any risk on her social reputation. To me, the eye-plucking compared to the cutting is a hint of certain behaviors, habits, or forms of self-destruction that can be passed on from generation to generation. On a similar note, in another scene on a phone call with Frank, we get more insight on his views on Camille's situation. He wants her to be good at her job and have a good life, but he is aware she is not addressing her own problems, and her alcoholism is not lost on him either. His wife warns him he can't fix everyone, so to me, it seems that Frank has more or less taken Camille under his wing, someone who genuinely loves her but isn't going to enable or support her self-destructive behavior either. After the funeral scene, the episode moves to the Keene house where Natalie's family is hosting a visitation. Here, we get more hidden words. Three cars outside the house have license plates that say, Bundle, Punish, and Tangle. Then, on the outside of Camille's car door, we see the word scared scratched into it. But what's especially creepy about this one is that a few scenes later, when we see the word in her car has changed to sacred. Finally, we see the word whatever on a pink sweater inside the house, presumably owned by Natalie. Now for me, it's pretty obvious what punish refers to, since Camille does this to herself all the time, and tangle proudly refers to the crimes going on, as well as the spider we later see Natalie kept in her room, web, tangled, etc. I think whatever is also a reference to Natalie's carefree teenage attitude Camille imagines she had, and which we got some impressions of during her funeral. As for scared slash sacred and bundle, I am honestly not quite sure what those could mean. Perhaps scared is about what Camille imagines Natalie's last moments were like, and sacred is the sanctity of life that was taken from her? Of course, if you have any ideas about these hidden words, or if you found one I didn't cover, feel free to mention it in the comments section. Anyway, at the visitation at the Keens' house, 
we hear lots of dialogue that might be a bit tricky to pick up without subtitles. Everyone here, of course, just loves to gossip, whether it's about other people at the funeral or who they think did the murder. They all have their own ideas on what should be done or what the detective is doing wrong and what they would do if they got their hands on the killer and so on and so on. And of course, everybody also has a drink in their hand. We also get a little glimpse into people who used to know Camille, that is, her former cheerleading friends, who even reflect similar behavior of Emma and her friends, the way they just blindly follow the one who has taken on the most authority and control. Once again, we get more homophobic rhetoric, but it's even worse now. These former cheerleaders, now a bunch of Southern Belle wasp bitches, debate if Natalie's brother John is gay. And why? Well, of course, because he is emotional and crying a lot due to his little sister being brutally murdered, so clearly he cannot be straight. Once again, and I think it's worth recalling that John is not native to Wind Gap, so that probably means he also grew up in an environment where he is not as encouraged to push down his emotions, where it was not necessarily looked down on for men to cry openly. In contrast, the men of Wind Gap don't seem to cry at all, even with their own daughters or neighbors being killed. Instead, we see Natalie's father binge drinking at the visitation until he can barely stand, or we see men take out their anger on their children, or in how they talk about the killer. I think it's sort of an interesting look at how different communities can encourage or discourage certain behaviors and people depending on the gender they're born as and the consequences that can have in the long run. In this case, John has not grown up in a small town where men push down their emotions through booze, drugs, or domestic violence. Now, to be fair, we do see John drink quite a bit to cope from the loss, but that does not stop him from crying either. As a result, when he is openly weeping over his murdered sister, Wind Gap jumps to the completely reasonable assumption that he must have feminine, aka gay, tendencies and traits. To make matters worse, they even hint that if he is gay, that would point to him being the one who murdered Natalie, claiming that what they call unnatural affections leads people to do that. So, congratulations Wind Gap on being the worst. Fortunately, our hero Camille is not here for the slander to the gays and does not appear to agree with them either, but she does not call them out on it. So, strike one for Camille. We love you, but you're on thin ice. Now, earlier I mentioned how there seemed to be a lot of dead girls in Wind Gap, so let's get back into that. One very compelling part of episode two introduces a local Wind Gap legend about the woman in white. Now, as we learn from Camille talking to folks around town, a young boy supposedly witnessed a woman in white kidnap Natalie. But the police have disregarded the boy's story, which I'll get back to in a minute. First, what is the woman in white? Well, this refers to a common motif in folklore. In the very first episode of this podcast, I touch on this a little bit. The Woman in White, or sometimes called the White Lady, is a story that can be found all around the world. Seemingly, almost every country has a story. In the United States alone, just based on a little research I did online, I found at least a couple dozen stories of the Woman in White making an appearance. Usually, she was wronged in life, or in some cases, she did wrong, and now she wanders around as a ghost, seeking either vengeance or justice. Sometimes this crosses over with a tragic love story, and she is the lady in white because she forever wears a bridal gown. Usually, she is a younger woman, and sometimes she is cursed to forever look for a lover or a child taken from her. But as for Wind Gap's personal take on the story, the idea is that there's a woman in the woods who kidnaps children. Why Wind Gap came up with this particular legend is up to us to decide, but it does beg the question. How many kids were killed, kidnapped, or just disappeared forever for this legend to take shape? And why did the legend take the form of the dreaded woman in white as opposed to a man or creature? 
much to think about. Also a fun fact, Gillian Flynn has mentioned that she would love to do a spin-off of The Woman in White, or as she puts it, the original Slender Man. In an interview with The Hollywood Reporter, Flynn stated that female mythology runs rampant in sharp objects, and I found this choice of words pretty fascinating. It seems that in writing this book and being a producer and writer for the series, Flynn is very interested in exploring all aspects of femininity, but its dark side in particular, having literally given us a feminine mythological figure that goes back thousands of years. Once again, it's another slight hint at a possible paranormal reality lurking beneath the surface of Wind Gap. But of course, the show does not state this outright. Are the brief images Camille keeps seeing just her hallucinations, or a way to show the viewer she is reliving a memory? Or is she witnessing an actual ghost roaming around? I think the writers of the show at least leave it open-ended enough for it that your interpretation is as valid as the next, but it does make for a compelling look into the series, and it's one of my favorite things about it. But circling back to Wind Gap, Camille confronts the police chief after hearing the boy's story about the woman in white. The chief discredits the account based on two things. One, the boy's mother is addicted to meth and suffering from cancer. According to the police chief, the boy has had such a disturbing, hard childhood that he made up the story as a cry for help. But reason number two is especially interesting. He insists to Camille that there is no way absolutely whatsoever that a woman did this crime. The violent nature of the murders, the fact that it was done to two young girls, plus the fact the killer pried out their teeth, so he says, all point to something only a man could and would do. Because, as we all know, only men are capable of aggression in the physical kind culminating in a murder and the only female form of aggression is in the gossip, slander, and backstabbing, but not, of course, literal backstabbing. And just like that, the only eyewitness account to the murders is completely ignored because it pins the murders on a woman. I am not going to add anything to this. Let's just keep moving on, and I'll leave you with that for now. Anyway, in relation to this conversation between Camille and the police chief, we also get a bit more on the Kansas City detective side of things. By the way, his name is Richard. Richard is also an outsider, trying to understand Wind Gap so he can try to track down the killer, and he tries to get to know the town through the police chief, but mostly Camille. Their relationship is almost a source of amusement as they both try to dance around the crimes while getting info from each other for the sake of their jobs. Richard is trying to use Camille to get to know the town, while Camille pries him for extra insight into the case. And it's also almost a relief from the typical wind gap folk Camille typically deals with throughout the show. But as for the detective, we learn that Anne Nash's body, just like Natalie's, also had all the teeth pulled out. He buys the head of a severed pig to test this out for himself, so while well, I should say that the image of a pig's head and mouth-related gore is very present in this episode. But the point being, Richard finds out that it takes quite a bit of strength to pull out a tooth. I do like the detective character at this point, by the way. He seems nice enough. And he has a few interesting insights into the case. For example, he notices that someone put flowers where Natalie's body was found, and he wonders if it was due to a guilty conscience. He also points out that the major difference between where the two girls' bodies were left was after their deaths. Anne was found in the middle of the woods, while Natalie was propped up in a windowsill right in downtown Wind Gap. Circling back to Richard and Camille, this episode also gives us a scene that offers more insight into Camille's past. As her and Richard are talking together at the local bar, a group of guys nearby make a lot of inappropriate sexual comments and innuendos at her. This is explained more later on and in the book, but for clarification's sake, it's all but stated that Camille was known for sleeping around a lot as a teenager, and that the high school football team used her, and yeah, this is where the whole thing of consent comes in. 
Not just how much or how little Camille actually consented to the things the men imply she used to be known for, but how she perceives this part of her past. Again, we'll get a lot more into it in a later part as the show goes back into it, but all this to say, it is pretty revolting that these guys talk to her this way and just get away with it. It is a scene that gives you an idea of Camille's reputation and the sort of demon she knew she would have to confront when she returned to Wingap. It's pretty hard to watch, or hear, that is. Also, Richard is on strike one for not telling those pricks to leave her alone, but I digress. Now, a couple quick warnings for this episode. We do have a scene where Camille self-harms with a needle. In one other scene, she is about to, but does not go quite through with it. And in another, she scratches herself slightly through her jeans. But it is an insight into how she got all her scars. It's brief, but it could be pretty triggering if you have or had a similar struggle. One last scene to talk about for episode 2 before we wrap things up. There is a scene in which Emma starts having a fit and Adora tries to comfort her. Camille heads downstairs to investigate and her and Adora end up in a bit of a shouting match. In this scene, Adora reveals a bit more about how Natalie and Anne's murders are personal for her. Earlier, she said she knew them, of course, but it's more than that. She took in the girls like they were her own children, even saying that Natalie reminded her of Camille. In her words, I thought maybe I could help her, since clearly I couldn't help you. And this just plain, well, hurts. Not only were Camille's two sisters favored over her, but Adore tried fixing what she broke with Camille by looking after Natalie, instead of, you know, trying to actually repair her relationship with Camille. This mother and daughter's relationship just gets worse the more layers you peel away. But what does Adore's fondness for Natalie have to do with everything else we've seen? What kind of killer would feel the need to remove all the teeth from her victims? Is Camille finally going to lick her drinking habit? Is the detective from KC going to find out who killed Natalie and Anne? And is there any credibility in the tale of the woman in white? Well, we will just have to wait and see what happens next. And with that, we're officially two episodes into this psychological crime southern gothic drama. Next time, of course, we will get further into the series. And oh boy, when I tell you so much has happened, but so much more is yet to happen, I hope you're as thrilled as I am. If you're in the $6 tier or above, you can submit a question to be answered on the next episode. If you're in the $12 tier or above, you can submit up to three questions, and you can also send a recommendation for movie or show to be reviewed next. Thank you so much for tuning in for this episode. And I'll see you next time on part two of my review for Sharp Objects.